Hello, everyone. Welcome to InterSTEM Talks, episode 11. Uh, we're so excited to have another episode today. Uh, again, with the speakers who've joined us uh, the past few episodes, myself, Gordon, Kaden, and Mana, we'll all introduce ourselves once again in a moment. Um, and just for everyone to get a, a head start, uh, or just like a preliminary view at what we're going to be talking about today, uh, we actually decided to go into how history and biology are kind of interconnected, which we felt that it often wasn't discussed because we often see humanities and sciences as two different things. Um, but in reality, it's a little bit different than that. And so uh, you'll see two of the ways that uh, history and biology can be intertwined to some extent. Uh, my name's Andre. I am uh, a junior at Beckman High School, which is in Irvine, California. Hi, I'm Mana. I'm a junior and I go to Los Altos High School. Hello, everyone. My name is Caden. I'm a junior and I go to Rancho Cucamonga High School. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Inner STEM podcast. I am, of course, the head of your table, Gordon Chang, and I go to Rancho Cucamonga High School as a junior. And the thing that I want to talk about the most right now is paleontology. Um, it's not something that I'm trying to aspire to be in the future, but for me, paleontology has always been a childhood passion, right? Kind of like professional wrestling. I've always loved to look up stuff about it, right? It's, it's always been very interesting, especially with the, the documentaries, you know, Walking with Dinosaurs, Walking with Monsters. I absolutely love those. And I mean, yeah, so I guess you could definitely say that I'm a bit of a history buff when it comes to paleontology. I mean, I'm just really into all these, you know, dinosaurs and prehistoric animals and all of that. It's really interesting to me. Uh, I would say that I do know probably more than 99% of teenagers at this time about paleontology, but I'm really curious to know how other people, what other people think of paleontology. So Caden, Andre, Mana, what do you guys think? What do you guys know about paleontology? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm relatively new to the subject, right? Uh, I, I just know the basics, right? Paleontology is obviously the study of fossils, prehistoric animals and such, uh, basically the beginning of the world and um, all the organisms that formed before um, other creatures formed like us. Um, and so that's that's basically all I know. Um, it should be an interest, it should spark an interesting conversation, right? Talking about the origins of, of uh, creatures, especially um, dinosaurs, cause uh, the, you know, those are always interesting. Yeah, um, for me, I think very similarly, I have like that very basic uh, one dimensional view, I think of paleontology. I also tend to think more like evolutionary science. Um, there's a lot of like theories on how the relationship between prokaryotes and eukaryotes is. So even though paleontology is more fossil based, my mind just automatically goes there. That's how my mind is wired. So um, yeah, that's that's what paleontology is to me. Yeah, for me too, it's 100% about fossils, but also um, I think it's a lot about like the dynamics of life before humans got to witness and participate in it, which um, I think is really cool considering we were never actually there to get a reference yet. We're still able to, you know, visualize what organisms that existed centuries ago look like because of paleontology all right well all right so i mean yeah i mean you know it does seem kind of boring to a lot of people um paleontology is definitely a 
very, I guess, specialized topic. But I mean, guys, do you guys at least have like any sort of dinosaurs or other prehistoric organisms that come to mind? Because like, personally for me, I would say that the organisms that strike out to me as the ones that are more special, that are not dinosaurs, uh, are the Dimetrodon and the Gorgonopsis. I'm sure you guys have no clue what I'm talking about, but basically a Dimetrodon is like a big humongous lizard with this like semicircle sail on its back. And it looks really cool. I suggest you guys all search it up. But right now I want to hear from other people. Like, what do you guys know? Like, which organisms strike out to you as the ones that are mo the most special? Wait, sorry about that. Did you say that there was a semicircle snail? Sail. Okay, so it's like... Sail, sail, sail. Okay, absolutely. okay, okay. Like, a, like a, you know, like the sailboats, but it's like a semicircle right on its back. You know, it's meant to... It's meant to serve as like a cooling device, like when the sun hits it, hits the sail, and it's like it cools down the body of the animal. So yeah, but what about you guys? Any cool animals from the past that you guys enjoy looking at or enjoy reading about? Um, for me, this is actually like based on some recent research that I had to do for some class, actually. Um, so one of them, I'm probably butchering their names. Actually, the main one that I can think of was called the Hagriffus or something. Um, it basically meant, or not meant, but it was, uh, it basically looks like a dino turkey is the way that it's described by a lot of people. It's from the Utah region, modern day Utah. And what I found most interesting about it is that we only know its appearance based off of a very marginal set of bones in like the meta metacarpal uh, region or actually, sorry, I think it was metatarsal region, phalanges, which is basically like foot ankle region uh, for anyone who's who's familiar with like the anatomical kind of terminology. But that's like the thing that comes to mind. Again, it's super interesting to me because we took the appearance just based off of like super fragmented bones and that's it. Um, so one organism that I thought was really interesting is actually a lot smaller than the ones that you guys mentioned. And it has it's cool, really cool for me because it has a really extensive fossil record and is actually the oldest known fossil. And that is cyanobacteria. And uh, cyanobacteria are basically bacteria that get their energy from photosynthesis. And many think um, that they were the first precursors to life as we know it. Um, but these fossils were basically found in what is now uh, known as Australia, and they were dated about 3.5 billion years ago, which I think is insane considering like the oldest known rocks are dated 3.8 billion years ago, which if you think about it, is not too far off on a timeline. Um, I didn't do too much research, but I do remember uh, there was one organism, uh, I believe it's called the Bacillosaurus or something like that. Uh, I believe it was... Like I, f I feel I remember there uh, there was a nickname um, for it and it was like King Lizard or something, which I read was kind of misleading because first of all, it isn't a lizard, you know, it's it's actually a, a big whale, um, in fact. And so if you guys look it up, it's it's really odd. It's it has like an eel like body, um, but it's still considered a whale, which is which is odd. Um, I remember reading that uh, its bones were actually used for furniture before. Um, so interesting fact. I, I don't think I'd uh, feel comfortable sitting on whale bones, uh, just personal opinion. But anyways, 
Um, I also found it interesting that they actually have very small brains uh, compared to their bodies. So they're very big, uh, but they have really small brains, which means they're pretty dumb. So, you know, they're big, but dumb. Uh, reminds me of somebody, but, you know, I'm not going to mention any names. Um, but yeah, that's the Bacillosaurus for you. Um, anyone else? Nope, I think we've all gone. But like the thing is, like now we're all mentioning all these cool like dinosaurs and dimetrodons and gorgonopsids. You know, I think we really need to talk about the pioneers of it. So, Caden, before I mean, no, everybody, but before I start on my PhD lecture on paleontology, have you guys ever heard of the Bone Wars, right? Uh, you know, let's see here, Charles Marsh and Edward Drinker Cope. Anyone heard of them? I have no idea who those people no are. Idea. I'd love Andre to Lana. enlighten me. Absolutely. All right, here we go. All right, so O'Neill, Charles Marsh, and Edward Drinker Cope. They were, let's just say this, they were rivals, right? They were very intensely feuding with each other to find the most dinosaur bones, right? And we're, I'm talking about, you know, this is a very intense rivalry, just like, just like any kind of like, if you really think of any modern day personal rivalries, right? Even sports rivalries, international rivalries, I'm talking about, you know, the Boston Celtics and the Lakers, right? Johnny Organo and Tommaso Ciampa, right? Th that was kind of how intense the rivalry was. They were all competing to find, you know, the most dinosaur bones and, you know, they really took it to the next level and they found over like, what, 136 new dinosaur species. Like this included, you know, Stegosaurus and even the more well-known dinosaur species of Coelophysis and Diplodocus. So, I mean, and, you know, obviously I could lecture all day about, you know, oh God, they were just fighting each other all the time. But I think what's really important is the competition aspect of it. Like, I mean, guys, how do, how do you feel about, you know, competition? I guess, not just within paleontology, but within the STEM field. I mean, you know, there are a lot of, you know, popular fields, right? Like biotechnology, there's gotta be competition on that. So guys, can you guys share some of the parallels to this? So personally, I think that competition actually drives research um, and it can, you can draw parallels to let's say like the American economy. I mean, America wouldn't be the world power that it is today without all these businesses competing with each other and you know, putting out products that all of us buy. So, um, yeah, that's a great parallel, I think, to competition and research. Um, in this case, paleontology with those two rivals, where that's actually driving innovation, that's driving discoveries, and it's really crucial to the STEM field. All right, so it's, that's completely fine. And honestly, Mon, I'm really glad you brought up the, the fact that, you know, that's how people progress. And to help you guys understand a bit more than anyone who's listening to this podcast right now while working out. So the thing is, like, I'm going to explain it in even more general terms by giving another comparison, right? I think one of the things that I would definitely mention is, like, how competition overall makes you a better person, right? It, it improves you because you're forced to step up continuously, right? Uh, I think one of the examples that is most relevant to my life that directly correlates to paleontology is actually professional wrestling right now. So as of right now, WWE and AEW, World Wrestling Entertainment, and All Elite Wrestling are at the pinnacle of, you know, I guess their ratings right now. They're both doing very successful, and that's because they're all competing for the same rating, right, within the 18 to 49 demographic. So you really see, like, they're all constantly improving, right? Before the competition, you know, there was a complacency. There, there was no need drive hard there was no need to mo be motivated but now it's like as you can see now it's like aew has a lot of stars right we're talking about cm punk brian danielson adam cole maxwell jacob Frieden, right and then wwe has its own set of stars right roman reigns johnny gargano 
Bobby Lashley, Big E. And it's like, it's, it's, it does directly draw kind of a comparison to, I guess, what the paleontology was. When I was just talking about paleontology, right? I'm talking about like they're competing to get find the most fossils while WWE and AEW are competing to find the most amount of ratings, right? They're kind of be as much, you know, as much appealing to a wide demographic as possible. And, you know, overall, I think what I'm really trying to get this is kind of like a life lesson here. The competition only makes you better, especially when you are motivated to succeed. That means you step up. And really, that, that's, that's really the overarching theme, I think, of the Bone Wars, you know, the rivalry between those Marsh and Cope. And yeah, I think that is extremely important to, and extremely relevant to today's topics. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, you say that competition makes you a better person. Uh, I mean, I don't really think this is like relevant to the discussion, but I kind of disagree. Um, <laughs> personally, uh, I've lost some friends who were, you know, I, I've had some friends in the past that were overly competitive, uh, not mentioning anybody in particular, of course. Um, you know, they were, they were very competitive, uh, both academically, personally, and everything, right? Uh, they're only reason for friendship was to compete like they they only wanted to be better than everybody else right <laughs> and so you know i don't think that's a necessarily a good trait um just my opinion i don't really know how this is tying into the discussion honestly but you know that's that's just my opinion on competition and uh its effect on personal growth adding on to that i know again it's it's not super like relevant but it is still a good discussion and for me, I think that they're both um, useful, like having competition and not in certain cases, it depends for me. And when it comes to like uh, academics, I do think that competition is, this might sound very odd, but only okay in like certain subjects. So I feel like, like for math, I don't think it should be competition based. I think it should be about problem solving. And I think it should be like, straying away from just knowing formulas and then comparing who can know better uh, formulas. It also shouldn't be like comparing who's the better problem solver, but in other subjects, this is like my very awkward view, but for other subjects that are less problem solving oriented, somehow I think that competition is okay. That's very odd. That's just like my view. And so, Ultimately, I just think that they should be like that that both like philosophies kind of should be used interchangeably depending on on what the competition is for. That's me personally. Very, very weird view, I think, but it's my personal opinion. So um, okay, to continue, I guess, the discussion of paleontology. I mean, I think what is, you know, I guess to continue on with, you know, get back on track, get back on the train about you know paleontology is the fact that it's special right it's not i know it's not something like biotechnology where we're all you know it's going to be the next big thing in the world but i think what is most important about paleontology is the fact that you know what we know about the past can affect our future right we learn far more about you know extinction level events right biodiversity and global warming and how that might affect us and so what i really want to i guess talk about is how do you think this relates to other STEM fields? Anyone have any ideas? So personally, I love the field of bioinformatics. So I'm gonna use that as an example of how it relates to paleontology. Um, but 
uh, paleontology, I think, really gave us uh, a lot of insight into genomes and how life came to be as we know it. And uh, these genomes are now what we can use in the field of bioinformatics and really like learn about humans and learn about other species and really what drives evolution, which is a huge part of paleontology. Um, so yeah, paleontology gave us a lot of great insight into just genotyping and being able to create technologies that help make the field more efficient. Speaking of bioinformatics, I actually think that another way that biology is super intertwined with like historical components and academic history stuff, um, I really think that ancestry is like a, a really interesting representation of where the two meet, uh, similar to like how bioinformatics was kind of similar in the sense as you were describing. Um, and so what makes me bring up ancestry is because I actually recently just took a 23andMe test uh, and it was really interesting. You do the normal process of spitting into a tube, uh, they collect your saliva sample, that's part of the process, and then they like obviously process DNA. Um, we will explain like in a moment like how that all works because it is pretty interesting, but um, I first just really want to talk about the results because I was like pretty interested in it. And it's not just results that they give you. They also give you like different traits and physical features that they would expect you to have based off of your DNA sample. For me, I ended up being 67.6 Southern European, which is honestly a bit more than I expected, like actually a lot more. I expected to be like maybe 50% Italian, 20% mm, German French, because there was like some storyline in my family heritage around that. And then also maybe like 30% uh, from South America because my mom has like a lot of roots there and like my grandpa is from Chile. So actually I turned out to be 53% Italian, which is like very close, pretty reasonable. 12% uh, Spanish, like directly from Spain, not from elsewhere, so in Europe. 2% uh, broadly Southern European, which is kind of unassigned. And then like the super small, saw, ugh, super small percentages, like Eastern European, Ashkenazi, Jewish. It's pretty interesting. The thing that surprised me the most, which does make sense in the end, is that I'm 29.3% Indigenous American, which would mean Native American. For me, I highly doubt that that's from Native you know, land of USA. I think it's more of uh, native to South America. That would make a lot of sense based on uh, like the stories and an actual heritage of my, my relatives in Chile, Bolivia. There's like some people from Argentina. So that, that does make sense. It's just not in the way that I expected. Um, and then like, 1% Western, Western Asian and North African, 1% broadly East Asian and 0.5% Sub-Saharan African, which honestly a lot of, a lot of people kind of have those, those roots. Um, I'm interested to see though, have you guys like taken this test or if you were to, what would you maybe expect? Uh, I have not taken that test, but honestly, I mean, that was a very interesting input. Like I would love to like find out how much like I guess how much Chinese I am or 
you know, maybe if there's other types of like Asians in there, you know, I think it is, it is really interesting to see like how, how far, you know, genetics has gone, right? Like just from, from, from one tiny saliva sample, you know, you can figure out like, oh, your heritage, your legacy, right? That is something that is very interesting to me. And honestly, if I had a predict, I would probably say like, uh, let's say 90 at, at the very least because like these things are very surprising and very shocking uh i would say that would be at least like 93 percent you know chinese uh i do have a lot of chinese heritage from that side of my family but i mean i do think that there is a possibility for me to be you know born of other descent and you know really i'm very curious to find out so if i ever have the time if i ever have uh, an extraordinary amount of curiosity. I'll definitely buy one of those and, you know, figure out what comprises Gordon Chang. I love that. Uh, Gordon, I just wanted to add on. Uh, I'm not sure if this is correct. Uh, I might be thinking of somebody else, but I, I think, if I'm not mistaken, you mentioned, like, you're part Mongolian. I mean, you know, that might mean that you're, like, connected to Genghis Khan, which is, which is cool. Right. That's that might be interesting. That might be uh, the legacy that you'll you'll be trying to. Um, I mean, that, that is certainly a potential. I don't have any legit proof, so I'm going to have to actually do that test. But Right. Yeah. OK, then. Katie, yeah, it was either you or uh, my friend Matthew. But anyways, yeah. Probably not you. Yeah. And anyways, Kane, what about you? What do you think your um, heritage would be? You know, uh, a lot of people say that I'm I'm a very complex person. I um, I think really differently. Right. Uh, kind of like Gordon. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if I'm like, you know, 10% black, 10% Mexican, 10% Asian, 10% white, 10% Spanish. Uh, no, I just said Mexican. Um, 10%, you know, Indian, right? You know, I, I might look one way, but, you know, uh, like, like Andre was surprised about his results, I might be surprised about my results. You know, my parents have said that they're both Indonesian. Uh, my my both of my parents are actually from Indonesia. Um, so I do expect a greater percentage of uh, my my genes to be Indonesian. Uh, you never know. I might be black. I might be white. I might be Indian. I might be, you know, Hispanic. You never know. Yeah, I completely agree. There's really no way of knowing until maybe you get that test done. And for me, I know practically nothing about my ancestry. And I've always assumed I was 100% Indian, so I'm going to have to roll with that until I take the test. But yeah, it's really cool how um, Andre was able to get a bunch of different results and be super surprised about that. I think that's really amazing. So I was just curious, like, what are the other components of the test, the report that you got back? Yeah, um, yeah. in addition to the ancestry, it also goes into, uh, I'm pulling it up right now, it goes into physical features, first of all, not going to go over all of them. But uh, for example, 58% chance you do not have dimples, which is true. Um, of course, you know, the opposite being 42%. Uh, there's things like earlobe types so 77% chance you have detached earlobes, which is true. Uh, a lot of this stuff ended up being true. But one of the things that was like super almost like taken back by was eye color and the probability that I would have had blue, green, greenish blue, or like very light hazel eyes. I had a 52% chance of blue eyes, 21% chance of greenish blue eyes, 17% chance of green eyes, and 8% chance of light hazel eyes. 
which is almost about, you know, like beyond 80%, uh, almost 90%. So it's like, I was like, no, why not? I mean, eye color, it, it's something we can control. Obviously, it's totally fine. It's its part of identity and it's, it's cool nonetheless, but that was something interesting because it was some, it was, um, uh, obviously a gene that was expressed in a way that was like contrary to probability. Uh, it also talks about like uh, hair and stuff and like widow's peak, unibrow, toe length, stretch marks, skin pigmentation. Talks about a lot of different things um, as well as like it goes into traits. So this is probably the most interesting thing to be honest. I'm a musician. I sing in like a choir. I play piano. I also play the organ. Uh, and so I got that I am less likely to be able to match a musical pitch, which is kind of ironic, but it's actually true. I, I can't really match musical pitch anyways. Um, I can likely smell asparagus odor detection, which if you guys are curious, you can definitely look it up online. I'm just not going to explain what it is. It's a little bit beyond the uh, reach of the conversation. Uh, I also have slightly higher odds of disliking cilantro. That's very true. I strongly dislike cilantro. 50-50 chance of having a fear of public speaking. I think that's generally true that 50-50 uh, kind of in the middle average. Uh, and then, you know, like wake up time, likely to wake up around 8.32 a.m. I don't know about that. I genuinely don't know what time I would like wake up normally. But just gave a lot of interesting things that you wouldn't think your DNA could tell you, like your wake up time, you know? Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, just a really quick question. Um, you did mention that toe length is involved. How, how big are your toes and how big are your toes supposed to be according to, you know, your gene samples? Okay, let me go to toe length. Toe length ratio. So it's actually like if you have a... Uh, bigger, long, longer big toe or longer second toe. So it says 67% chance you have a longer big toe. So two thirds chance. And I think that's true. So there you, you go. See? Do, do you want to like prove it? Uh, I, I can prove it to myself, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice. Okay, anyways, moving on. Absolutely, that was a very incredible discussion. Um, I mean, I guess that really does put forth the question of like, how much of our lives are essentially dictated by genetics, I guess. This may be you know, a bit too uh, too broad of a topic to talk about, but like, I mean, it does seem incredible that like Andre gets to like do 23 and me, and then all of a sudden he gets to like talk about his personality traits and, you know, I mean, just like his possibility of not liking cilantro. I mean, I, I have no idea where this goes, honestly. Yeah, I definitely agree how amazing it is that our pretty much our entire lives are dictated about by genetics um and it's really cool that you have like these uh few chemicals that basically drive all of our behavior all of our traits all of our bodily functions and um that's pretty much what 23andme is measuring they're measuring your genomes they're measuring how your genomes um what your genomes are composed of, what alleles they're composed of, for those of you guys who know a little bit about genomics. Um, and they're comparing that to a reference genome, a human reference genome, and a bunch of other genomes that they have in their databases. And that's how they're making those um, 
those claims that, oh, you're 60% Italian or 20% um, from North Africa because they have all those other genomes in those databases that uh, they're comparing your genome to. And yeah, so it's really cool that your, your entire life is dictated, uh, as Gordon said, by your genetics. Yeah, and one other thing that just reminded me, like almost going back to paleontology, like when you think of prehistoric things, actually a very interesting uh, thing that was mentioned in here was my Neanderthal ancestry um, and like where my uh, mother's side came from, from what, from, from Africa, which is like, you know, human descendants uh, and then maternal, like maternally and paternally, where, where where did my family lines go from Africa? How did they travel? So for like Neanderthal ancestry, it was like, I have 80% more Neanderthal DNA than other customers, something like that. It's just interesting, I guess. And paternal, paternally, um, it kind of like shows how there was a lot of different options. Um, my family line could have gone from West Africa to like Middle East area towards Asia, or it could have gone to um, Europe, European area. And then maternally, um, it goes directly from Africa to Asia to like kind of where Russia is, Siberia area, and then into America, um, Americas. So like that would obviously be from my mom. Uh, that's something that I thought was like pretty relevant to what we were talking about prehistorically, although it's nothing to do with other organisms that like no longer exist and, and their fossils uh, can be studied. It's something that's relevant to like living humans, right? Humans are still living, I hope. Um, and so I thought that that was another really interesting thing. And it kind of just shows the bridge, I think, between history and biology where we might not expect it. Absolutely. I, mean, I think that was really amazing what you just said there to connect those topics. I mean, I think that really does explain the relevance of paleontology, right? It's like, I mean, it's essentially like, hey, what organisms lived before us and what, what kind of came after, right? It does kind of provide that bridge of evolution and it gives us a lot more insight into, I guess, how, how you know, organisms have operated and how organisms have changed, right? You can see now like scientists all over the world are trying to like you know, do a bunch of experiments like going into space and all that, right? This this shares a lot of parallels with paleontology because the same thing with paleontology, right? We learn about, you know, the past and we try to figure out, hey, how do we become more productive in the future to ensure that, you know, we're after operating at like, you know, prime, you know, minimum, I guess. Yeah, and, and now that I'm thinking more about like what we were talking about with paleontology, I also just remembered um, a, a figure, a person that was very, um, influential in determining things about DNA, kind of like how with uh, the rivalry between, what was it, Othniel and Edward, I think? Martian Cope. Just <laughs> use the last names. That's fine enough. Martian I, I don't Cope. remember names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Martian, Martian Cope. Uh, and then, so this person regarding DNA, uh, her name was Nettie Stevens. It's almost similar in a way to um, what we were talking about last episode, which with the infamous story of like Watson and Crick and Rosalind Franklin, in the way that it's about um, kind of like credit didn't exactly go where it was due. So she performed a lot of different studies that eventually showed that an organism's sex was determined by 
its chromosomes rather than like anything else. So she was able to deduce that males had obviously the X and Y chromosome, whereas females only had X chromosomes, no Y chromosomes. So that was like enough evidence. But um, a lot of people call what she experienced as a Matilda effect um, because that's basically when people deny the contributions of a female researcher to science. So she kind of fell victim to that because someone else, Thomas Hunt Morgan, or just Morgan for short, um, was credited mainly for that because he was the first one to talk about it in a textbook. And textbooks take information commonly from previous textbooks, not from like actual sources. So because of that, like throughout textbooks, he's more credited uh, as the ge geneticist that discovered it. So I think it's like really interesting kind of, that's like kind of social, that's a social discussion in itself. Um, but the story in itself is pretty interesting. Not, again, not necessarily science, just an interesting story that happens to be about, about DNA. You know, I'm really glad you brought that up, Andre, because, you know, once again, you brought up another example of, I guess, you know, just, you know, some other pressing issues that we have within the STEM field. And I think that's really important because it really goes to show that, you know, the same racial, social, and economic issues that are, that the world is currently facing is also reflected within the context of STEM, right? We're talking about Rosalind Franklin. And right now, uh, let's see here, this Nettie Stevens, right? It's, it's, it's almost as if, you know, there, there's always this interconnectivity within the world right now. And I, I'm really glad that you brought this up. And it, it is, I think it's going to be a very central discussion, not just on our podcast, but within the world itself. Yeah, I think so too. And, and ultimately we were talking, we've been talking about paleontology and ancestry and they might seem like kind of not outlandish, but like far-fetched careers or things that you would get into. But in reality, like you think about someone's career and ultimately it's not just like, oh, they're a biologist. Could be, could be. But people tend to have like these super interesting interests or passions that somehow like culminate with their, their skill sets. And I don't know why I just mentioned that, uh, but I think there is something to be said about that and kind of like why today we discuss like the, the connecting bridges between history and biology. Uh, and again, the unexpected field sense. Um, and so I, I really think that that was interesting, uh, what we talked about today. The next episode will be uh, released in a few weeks. Uh, and do you guys have anything else you think that would be like super interesting? Uh, it could be anything random. I don't know. I mean, I think what I really want to like, I guess, just kind of say as an inspiration, I, I, know, I know I always say that inspirational quote of opportunity is only good if you deliver. But like, I guess on, on a more serious note, um, you know, this is like stuff that, again, at the very basis, we know some of some of this, right? We know we don't know too much about paleontology. We know you know some basic concepts, same thing with you know the, the ancestry stuff, right? We only know the basics, right? So currently, what I'm trying to get at is that the world is always looking for somebody to step up and you know to provide more knowledge within all these fields, whether it's you know science, as you can see here, paleontology and ancestry, or it could even be applied to you know other issues in life, right? Social issues or economic issues. So, you know, I think the purpose of this podcast is really inform people about, you know, the opportunities that are out there. And I think it is really important that, you know, people continue to stick to what they love. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think anyone could really disagree with that. Well, thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of InterSTEM Talks episode, uh, I believe this is episode 11. Uh, next episode will be episode 12. It was so fun to have this discussion and uh, we'll see you guys all, or, or I guess talk to you guys all in the next episode. Bye. 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 Thank you everybody.